Welcome to the Bartender Atlas Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Lindley. On this episode, I talk with one half of Charleston, South Carolina's cocktail bandits, Johnny Caldwell. As per usual on this podcast, we don't talk a whole lot about cocktails. Instead, we talk about Johnny's love of her hometown, how naming a book is way harder than naming a cocktail, and her family history. And in dealing with Johnny's family history, we talk about some very important cultural history in Charleston, including Gullah Geechee culture and Ayers rights. Uh, we go deep on this one. So enjoy Johnny Caldwell on the Bartender Atlas podcast. Johnny Caldwell, one half of the Cocktail Bandits. I'm going to start this off with asking you, where did you grow up? Like when you were a little kid? Yes, I grew up in Charleston. Uh, my family has um, always been here. Um, we are descendants of former enslaved Africans who were brought to Charleston. And after, um, you know, slavery was abolished, my great, 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 great grandfather was able to purchase property in Mount Pleasant where my family, my family still owns that property to this day. It's been passed down um, through generations through a process, a legal process called heirs property. Um, so just really deeply honored to be able to represent the Gullah Geechee culture, to represent um, the hope and the dreams of the slave. Honestly, I mean, when when my great, great, great grandfather was, um, you know, alive and doing what he was doing, I don't think he ever fathomed his um, descendant would be, you know, making a living through alcohol, through cocktail culture and advocacy. So um, I just am proud to represent the evolution of that. That's amazing. That's Honestly, you went so deep right there. We're going to come back and touch on everything you just touched on eventually. Uh, I'm going to get more into about you, though, before we get too into the family history. Um, when you were a little kid, what kind of school did you go to? Yeah, I went to public school. I um, was very, um, you know, I did very well in school. I took advanced classes. I knew fairly early on that I wanted to go to law school. And my mother, who um, did not go to college, I'm, I'm a first-generation college student from my family, she really fostered that and supported me um, in my studies. She supported me through college and supported me through law school. So I'm um, just tremendously fortunate to have a family that um, made that kind of invested investment in my education. Um, and she was a little miffed when I decided to make a complete pivot from a legal education to hospitality and tourism culture. So it took a little while for her to get on board. But, um, you know, since you've met her personally, you know, she's a huge supporter of what we do now. I'm a huge supporter of your mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's amazing. I, I love that lady the second I laid eyes on her. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, when you were, when you were little, you did really well in school when you were in high school around, you know, like a teen, what sort of things were you into? What sort of extracurriculars were you doing that weren't just school-based? I was very into French culture. I started taking French lessons in school in like sixth grade. And, um, I was a minor in French in college and I studied abroad in France twice when I was in at the College of Charleston. So I really love the the French lifestyle, the whole, like, the culture, the music, the, the art. It was something that really entranced me as a youth. So um, I still, when we were in France in February, it was just like a whole new, I opened up, like, different eyes because even when I was in college, I didn't have an appreciation for the beverage side and how much contributions come from France as far as... Um, 
liquid assets. So to be there now with more education and being able to ask questions and be more intentful on what we were what we were doing there was definitely full circle for me and my French education. I also um, was on our STEP team, which is STEP is um it's like a hybrid of dance and African tribal movements. So we do a lot of like stepping and making noises with our body and stuff. And we would compete all over the South doing that. So that was kind of like as most athletic as I got <laughs> in, in a high school there. Listen, anyone that's seen a step routine knows that that's no joke sort of athleticism. <laughs> like that, I feel like that counts as more of a sport than like bowling or golf for sure. We were serious. Like we were very uh, serious about our craft and we traveled. Again, my mom was our head coach one, one year and she was serious about whooping us into shape. And it definitely, um, again, I, I don't even realize the connection to all of that, that has been a part of, you know, a lot of what I've been doing. And earlier you mentioned uh, Gullah Geechee culture, uh, which I know is very localized to specific areas of the South. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Sure. So Gullah Geechee, is a you know community of people who have held on to our connections and our culture from when we were in Africa. So we have a huge connection with Sierra Leone, um, with Western um, African countries, and we have maintained some of those traditions. So there's a whole language that we speak um, that's called Geechee. It's a kind of like Yiddish if you would put it in those type of like cultural terms, it was something that, you know, is a, a mixture of different African tribal language and a little bit of English language. And it was a way for slaves to communicate with each other that the master couldn't understand. And we just maintained some of those, um, you know, that some of those wordage, some of the way that we, you know, take language off certain. What's so unique about Gullah Geechee culture is that it's one of the, because Charleston and the Sea Islands were so isolated from the mainlands, we were able to be insulated from some of the changes that was happening outside. So some of the food traditions have been able to survive um, through oral tradition and being passed down through from family to family. Uh, the basket weaving is a really big thing. If you look at some of the um, museums around this country, um, it's in America, namely the Smithsonian Institute, there are huge baskets that have been woven from um, artisans here in Charleston, these baskets were used to do anything from whole food and fruit to sift rice on the plantation. So when you come to Charleston, there's a huge community of artisans who still make different art pieces from sweetgrass. And that's a direct a tie to Gullah Geechee community and uh, a handover from when we were um, still enslaved. So I feel really honored to show that you know, we infuse that Gullah culture in our cocktails by using certain ingredients um, that are tied to our our roots, things that our, our ancestors brought over with them from Africa. We even look back on how some of the um, ways that people have brewed over the time that's become very popular are techniques that were used in, in Africa that our ancestors brought over with them. Um, in, in more recent times, you can see brands like Jack Daniels who have been open about, you know, that they got assistance from their um, slaves on how they were distilling their products. 
So um, when we were researching our book, we really wanted to be able to point to people and specific brands and companies, but there really weren't a lot of records that were kept over time. So again, we feel really responsible and very privileged to be able to kind of create a record to kind of chronicle some of this history and some of our contributions that we've been making to food and beverage ways um, since the beginning of this country. Thank you for giving us uh, a little bit of a background, especially because uh, Gola and Geechee culture is so hyper local as well. It is something that I know a lot of people don't really come across unless you're looking for it. But your family specifically, and you've already mentioned, you know, you're very influenced by your family. But going back a few generations, your family's been very community minded, right? Yes. Yes. Um, um, tell us a little bit about uh, some of your ancestors between, like you said, your great times six grandfather buying a, <laughs> a chunk of land and then your great great grandmother ran a speakeasy and community sort of center as yes. well. She did. She's so cool. I, I you know, I, when I was born, she was on, you know, not in the best of health. And I see pictures of her when she was younger and she was just so statuesque. She had such a presence. I wish, I, you know, I had a chance to meet her when she was in her prime because she was just a phenomenal woman. She was illiterate and she never married, but she got a job working at a cigar factory, which was a huge opportunity for a black single woman at that time. She was able to fully support her family, uh, provide things like dental care for her grandkids who is my mother. So she was just able to support her family in a way that other folks in our community weren't able to. Her efforts and her work allowed me to be in a position that I am today. Um, she also had to do odd jobs to fill in the, the gaps. And she did run a speakeasy out of her home. She would bootleg tobacco and alcohol and she would, you know, serve simple meals for people who was coming in and out a town and just had that type of social aspect always in her home. And she passed down those entertaining instincts to my mother. She is always entertaining at her home. She always has guests over for holidays, even people from family who just drop into town randomly. They always stop by her house as their point of entry into the city. So um, I think that has been instilled within me through my DNA. Now, my great-grandmother, um, her daughter was a part of the Medical University nurses strike that took place in the late 60s. Um, my aunt walked out with a number of other Black female nurses because they were being, being paid significantly less than their white nurse counterparts, and they were also being you know, forced to work long hours without having a choice you know, work, working the worst of the shifts, working on the worst hospital floors. And after, you know, trying to negotiate with them, they walked out and they had a strike. And ultimately, they ended up getting a, a raise increase for her and her colleagues who walked out and just putting some benefits in place for them. So having that um, type of history, my aunt actually had my mom out there walking with her in the marches when she was like 12 and 13 years old. So she got to see firsthand what, um, you know, claiming your rights and stepping out on faith look like. And she has, you know, walked in that step ever since. Yeah, I come from a long line of outspoken uh, women who are not afraid to, you know, speak their mind and also put some action behind what they're saying. Do you think that has anything to do with you 
going to post-secondary, you went to uh, school for political science first and then eventually law school, right? Mm-hmm. So you decided to become a lawyer. Would you say that's directly because of the influence of your family? Oh, for sure. I think it was um, multiple things. I mean, I think a lot of us first generation kids who go to college from minority families feel an obligation to be successful in order to um, change the social economic status of their families. So not only did I want to um, have some type of effect on our legal community and our community as a whole, I wanted to make money. I wanted to be in a position where I could repay my mother, where I could help improve, you know, our, our lifestyle. I mean, I still, I feel like a lot of us have this obligation to give back to our families and just try to help us be more um, financially competitive. So being a lawyer seemed like the best way for me to be able to do that. And then I always had in my mind that I wanted to parlay my career into some type of political space. Um, And I thought that that would be the best way to do it. But now, as I sit being in this business almost seven years, I feel like activism comes in so many different forms. You don't have to be a doctor or a lawyer to be successful. You don't have to be a community organizer to affect your community in a positive way. Yeah, I think that's something that we're all becoming more and more familiar with as a lawyer and a black woman living in the U.S., especially the South um, mm-hmm. right now or really ever. Um, what are you seeing? What angles are you watching that are sort of you feel maybe you're being missed by a lot of organizations or media with all of the stories, especially around all the Black Lives Matter activism and, you know, how the government has treated everybody involving not just COVID, but obviously uh, police brutality. Are there things that you're picking up with your lawyer brain that other people might not be seeing or talking about so much? Well, I want to acknowledge something that you guys in Toronto do so well. And I talk about this all the time. The first night at Toronto Cocktail Conference, you guys had someone from the Indigenous community come on stage and talk about the contributions that they have made to Canadian culture. And it gives me chills right now to even think about it because I had never seen an organization acknowledge their indigenous community in that way. It's like something that we all know has happened that these lands were taken and that this culture and everything was appropriated um, unjustly, but people don't say it. So for you guys to acknowledge that, that's something that's always really resonated with me. And it's something that I have suggested Um, other organizations adopt. And that, I think, is a direct connection to the Black Lives Matter situation is that people have been, you know, we all have been aware of the fact that Black people have been getting murdered by the police at an exorbitant rate in comparison to everyone else. But for some reason, we've been, like, overlooking it and not addressing it head on. And now we're at a fever pitch of where you can't ignore it. You have to address it. People are scrambling. I mean, even from our business standpoint, we have been just drowning in emails from brands who want to work with us on how they can uh, either, you know, train their staff on being, um, you know, not being unconsciously biased or, you know, how they can be better with their uh, diversity and inclusion for their, their business and their goals, but also them wanting to just plain out tokenize us and use us as an example of, oh, see, we're being progressive. We're working with the cocktail bandit. So you can't say that we're racist because 
you know, we're working with these girls. So it's a, it's a total, uh, you have to really do a, a, a serious litmus test with these brands to see if they're just trying to be performative and how they're responding in this time, or they actually want to make fundamental change within their company and on their team on having real, a real mission of having a diverse and equitably inclusive organization. Cocktail Bandits, you and Tanika have been at this for seven years now. Uh, and as you mentioned, you're drowning in emails currently. Do you feel like um, it took all of this happening for people to appreciate what you're actually doing? Or do you feel like a lot of it is more performative? I think we, the brands that we have already been working with, we've all had that diversity conversation on some level. You know, we do, uh, you know, cursory view on people's websites and on their Instagram before we work with them to see before we work with them, if they are truly, um, diverse or if they are looking for an easy way out by using us. And if we see that we address that head on or we choose not to work with the brand, it's these new brands who are coming out of the woodwork that is making it more difficult because it's like, you know, we, we, you weren't on our radar before. Um, not really sure what your intentions are. So I don't want to immediately cast you in the light of being performative, but, um, you know, they all say, you are already on our radar. You are already like on our list. You are already on our short. You know, I don't want to call them liars. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just difficult. We're taking it on a case by case basis and we're definitely um, going to the brands that we were already working with who are already being progressive first. Let's talk a little bit more about drinks and cocktail bands. Thank you again for being so open and honest about all of that. I can't imagine the last, I mean, six months, but also all life and dealing with every business has been particularly simple. And thanks for being so honest uh, with all of that. So cocktail bandits, you finished law school, you were having a hard time finding work, right? As was Tanika. And you decided, and you decided that cocktails are the thing and you made a jump. But uh, you sort of mentioned earlier, your mom was not stoked um, (laughs) when you made the jump from law to drinks. How did that come about? It was um, really by um, happenstance. Like I said, I was desperately trying to find work. I was applying for legal jobs. I was even applying for jobs that um, I could do without a legal degree. I just was desperate for work. I also have a child. He's 19 now, but then he was like, you know, 12. He's in middle school. He's doing, he needs, he needs things. He's a child. So it was a lot of pressure on me to figure out something that some way that I could support my family. Um, Tanika had moved from one part of Charleston to our downtown area and was looking for work. And she was experiencing the same, the same issues, but you know, this on the same caliber, like she had experience. She worked in high volume, urban and minority bars and restaurants um, in the greater Charleston area, but they didn't deem her work uh, qualified to work in the higher end bars downtown. So we were just looking, we literally were like getting up and meditating and fasting and like, what do we need to be doing? What can we do every day and not get tired of it? And it was drinking. So we're like, all right, we have to figure out a way to make this into something legitimate, but we don't really have a a platform here physically that we can do it. Like at this point, we didn't know any business owners or restaurateurs, anybody that had a space. So we went to social media because that space was free. 
Um, we were seeing the success of a lot of the females who were uh, doing like makeup tutorials and hair tutorials and fitness and stuff. And, you know, we didn't want to, that lane was already full of, of women who were killing it. People creators to it is coming at all angles. And what we were seeing here locally was there wasn't any presence talking about food and bev, specifically cocktails. There were no women and there were absolutely no black women talking about it. So we just said, we'll fill that space. We'll take our love for cocktails and in the social being social and being out. And we'll make that into something that people can look to as aspiration. Um, they can look to as a guide for when they want to come to Charleston and, and experience Charleston. I mean, you'll be surprised how many people of color feel like they don't, they wouldn't be safe in certain Southern states, especially Charleston where we had a mass, a massacre in a church um, where nine people were killed. Nine people of color were killed by, um, by this person who was ill, mentally ill. So, you know, that put a lot of fear in people, but we wanted to show our audiences and audiences all over the country that we are here in Charleston. We are Charleston. It's a safe place to come and reconnect to your, your roots. If you're an African-American, if you're not, you can still connect to history here in Charleston. Our food is amazing. Our beaches are awesome. And, you know, it's a safe place to be. And if we don't occupy the space, then there will never be a space for us to be safe and feel comfortable in, you know, that's it's, why I've never left. It's funny. I was just going to get into it. Um, that's, you clearly love Charleston. <laughs> You're born and raised. This is, this is who you are. And in 2018, you and your partner, uh, in all things, Tanika wrote a book, Holy Spirits. Can you explain the, just very quickly, why Holy Spirits is the title? Yes, Holy Spirits. And we have went back and forth with so many different names. Naming a book is hard. If you think naming a cocktail is hard, a book is even more difficult. And especially one that was just so special to the culture, we really wanted to have some significance. Uh, Charleston is known as being the holy city because we have so many churches per square mile. We're a peninsula. It's only about nine miles long from top to bottom, but we have hundreds of churches and steeples that you can see um, from our skyline. So our, our city is very proud of being the holy city. So, um, you know, holy city, holy spirits, it just kind of came together that way. And we definitely play on um, religion in the South with throughout our book and just make certain nods to the fact that, you know, spirits and alcohol if you want to get technical, started in a monastery. <laughs> so it, it is a Holy Spirit. It is something that is, um, you know, made for ceremonial purposes originally. And, and it still has that space now. So um, I think it's representative of, of Charleston and our culture. We have some history on Charleston's um, beverage ways that is hugely connected to Barbados and um, some other spice islands. Uh, and I don't think people realize the connection that Charleston has to um, that area of the world and how we have so much connection to the food and the rum culture and, and all that good stuff. We wanted to shed light on that and, and just tell more about our story. 
So um, I'm glad that you guys like it. Holy Spirits is doing very well. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. We have a link on our website, cultivatedness.com. And um, we're just incredibly proud of it. And you should be. I've I've read it. It's great. It's it really is a love letter to Charleston. And there's a lot of not just uh, personal history in that book, but also history of Charleston and the area in the book as well. It's it's really cool. Um, it doesn't happen very often, I don't think, unless we're talking about London or New York. Um, actually, there's a friend of ours uh, on the west coast of Canada who wrote a, a similar sort of idea where he featured entirely Victoria, British Columbia. But to read something about Charleston, and especially because in the past few years, Charleston has gotten so much uh, love about the food down there, that uh, to read a book about cocktails from Charleston is really kind of refreshing and sort of different from what you might expect from a, a cocktail book. They aren't usually geographically based. <laughs> yes, we got a lot of that. And people really want to be able to get a taste in the field of Charleston, even if they can't particularly get here. I feel like the book really can give you a flavor of what the city is like and the imagery. We took a lot of time in designing those photos and getting the, the proper scenes of Charleston. We really wanted to to really showcase, you know, a love letter is a, is a good term to use for our book. I think I'm going to take that Josh it's all yours people. <laughs> Run with it. But, um, yeah we're, we're really honored it was a big thing for our publisher um they're they're old company here in Charleston and they hadn't previously had any uh black female authors they hadn't had any black female authors that they featured on the cover of the book and in a larger scope there hadn't been any black women who wrote a book about cultural culture including cultural recipes written ever so we broke a lot of different markers with that book. And again, like I said, we just want to keep encouraging other people of color and diverse backgrounds to write your own stories, to create the record. Because if we don't write down, you know, and chronicle what's being what's happening and these people and acknowledge them, um, we may not be able to keep that legacy alive moving forward. So it's, it's, it's on all of us to contribute to the collective knowledge. And part of what you've done with Cocktail Bandits is to keep contributing and keep, you know, spreading cocktail culture to people of different backgrounds in and around Charleston. You've been doing events, as you said, starting with social media, but then bringing it out into real things, whether it's competitions or just cocktail nights or, you know, DJ nights that you've been organizing with COVID-19, um, having, you know, shut everything down or sort of thing, opened things back up or having only groups of 50 or only groups of 30 allowed in one place, what sort of angles, what sort of pivots are you making with Cocktail Bandits for the future? How, how much planning can you do right now? It has been um, a challenge to figure out that space, especially in Charleston, where despite the fact that our numbers are going up as far as positive cases, our state as a whole isn't making any restrictions on movements. Um, they're still allowing people to dine in at restaurants and um, we just passed a mask ordinance um, that is being very loosely enforced. So, you know, I know people personally who have died from the complications from COVID and we are not comfortable doing any types of in-person events. Luckily, we've been able to use uh, virtual platforms to interact with people. Just last night, we hosted a tasting session with about 20 people in a brand, and we had just mailed people the sample kit and mailed them a copy of our book. Uh, we're doing that with, with uh, 
<laughs> with the Charter Cocktail Conference as well. So it, it's, it's different ways that you can engage. You can give people things if you can send them stuff um, and still make them feel connected. I like the fact that you still have to sign up. You still have to go into a room and, and it's exclusive. So you kind of feel like I have to be there at a certain time or I'm going to miss it. That way you really feel like you're part of something too, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's different. That live aspect is so fun because it makes you anticipate it. You, you're checking the clock as opposed to like a pre-recorded video that's just, you know, being released. You're like, oh, I can just watch it at any time. And sometimes you kind of forget it. So I like that aspect of it. We've been able to work with some local apartment complexes here as well to entertain um, their residents people who have been really cautious about not moving out. We still want them to be able to feel like they're being entertained and to interact with people on that level. Can I get you to expand on that? Cause I saw one of your live, your Instagram live videos of you and Tanika doing this tour of what looked like an amazing apartment complex. And, <laughs> and so you were, what that was, was hosting a cocktail party for residents. Yes. Yes. What we did was we, organized all these bags that had pre-made cocktails in it with some swag and stuff. And we hopped on live and we, um, you know, gave about 30 residents those packages so they could drink along with us. We did an educational session on the spirit. And then for our followers, we got to show them this amazing space. So you can kind of see like Charleston living and, you know, options here in Charleston. So it served multiple purposes. It was really engaging to have people, you know, log in who, you know, people vacation to Charleston so often and they have, we are one of the top wedding destinations here in the country as well. So it was a great venue. I think it's so aspirational to see spaces like that because it gives you hope for, you know, where you can be at and what you can do once we move on past um, the pandemic. So it makes us really happy. It, it makes me smile to be in those spaces and to kind of think about what we can do when we can do things. And um, people have really been enjoying them. I know we've talked about a little bit about a little more heavier stuff than maybe uh, we thought about getting into. So I'm going to finish it off a little light. I know that you are a huge fan of all things agave. Yeah. Uh, and as you mentioned, you have a bit of an obsession with French culture and you have a definite obsession with all things Charleston and, and things from the South. If you were going to make a tequila cocktail where, you know, July, August ish, it's hot out. If you were going to make a tequila cocktail involving something French and something from the South, what would it be? Oh goodness. Well, peaches are so big in the South to me. They represent like Southern culture and just being a, you know, a Southern peach. So some type of peach liqueur um, in the mix with the tequila. And, um, you know, we were just in Cognac in February and I just had an amazing experience. My, my love for that spirit has been deepened. And we talked about so many different connections between African-American culture and how we uh, consume so much Cognac, especially, you know, the big houses like Hennessy and Cavoisier. Mm -hmm. So um, definitely using some type of really fine, organic Cognac um, in the cocktail as well would be delicious. Honestly, uh, peaches and Cognac and tequila sounds pretty good right now. Yeah, I'm like, go get that. Now now I'm just (laughs) like, "Uh, how close is my closest store to go get some peaches? Uh, Uh, okay, Johnny, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, again, if people want to find you, if someone 
hasn't already started following the Cocktail Bandits and all that you do, how do they do that? Yes, find us on social media, all platforms at Cocktail Bandits. We are also on Snapchat a little bit, a little bit of TikTok. I know that's for the, the younger kids, but we're, we're trying to TikTok a little bit. Our website is www.cocktailbandits.com. That's where you can see all of our upcoming um, virtual events that you can register for. Um, we're also available for private bookings to do a virtual happy hour for maybe your work team or a bachelorette group or a fun girls night. Uh, we're available for those types of things. If your team or group needs some one-to-one training on um, diversity, if you want to talk and have us open up the floor for you guys to discuss some issues with inclusion within your organization, we're available for that as well. Um, and definitely get our book, Holy Spirits, Charleston's Culture Through Cocktails on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Books A Million. We have a link on our website where you can get it directly. There's a link on our Instagram profile as well in our bio. Um, yeah, get that. Amazing. Thank you again so much for taking the time to talk. No, it was a pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. I hope that wasn't too much for you because on the next episode of the Bartender Atlas podcast, I'll be talking with Tanika Reeves, the other half of the Cocktail Bandits. It's my first ever two-parter. I hope you're excited. I'm excited. If you want to help me out with this podcast, rate it wherever you're listening to it. Give us five stars or a thumbs up or whatever your podcast listening platform says. I'm Josh Lindley. You can find me at Bartender Atlas on all social media. Jess, my partner in everything, and I share that account, so... Make sure when you're addressing something to us, it's definitely to us and not just me. Uh, Until next time, be well, John Spartan. Yeah, I, you would laugh if you saw I was using a proper studio for the first couple months that I was doing this podcast and then COVID happened. So I have like a cardboard box and a pillow next to my door and like uh, a weird like shade over the curtain and stuff. It's a hilarious imitation of a studio setup I'm working on. So your AC unit is the least of our problems. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> but hasn't that been crazy though, like making these pivots to the online and virtual platforms you don't think about all the production that happens just to be able to do that from the internet connection to the proper lighting. I mean, we have like boxes stacked up with our computer on it when it's a zoom meeting. And then other times we have like a easel that holds the cell phone up. It just is like forcing us to really expand our talents.